Father, as we have have just considered today already, you reveal yourself to us in your word. Father, we know that we need you to do that for us by your spirit. Father, we do not find you on our own, but but you work in our hearts by your spirit. We pray that you would do that today. Father, I pray that you would keep me from error in the things that I say. Father, that you would speak through me by your spirit. And Father, that you would uh, touch hearts and, uh, Lord, awaken them, give people ears to hear uh, your word, that they might know you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a reality TV show in the United States called Undercover Boss. Now, each episode basically follows the same script the head of a real-life company, so the CEO or the president of that company, goes undercover to work as a regular employee in some part of their organization. So, for example, the CEO of McDonald's might go work in some McDonald's restaurant. The idea is, uh, the premise of the show, is that the CEOs will learn something valuable about the companies that they're leading by going undercover and working as a regular employee they'll learn something that they can take with them as they go back to their regular job of running the entire company. Because it makes for good TV, uh, when these CEOs are sent out on this mission, they are always sent to work closely among employees who have some difficult life circumstance they're going through, some tragedy in their life, or perhaps an employee who feels forgotten or overlooked by the, the company, that they're just being worked and worked and worked but not appreciated. Well, at the end of every episode, it, uh, the same thing happens. The, the CEO always reveals their true identity to the people they have been working with. And then after revealing their identity to these people, the, the CEOs almost always choose to do something kind for these employees that they have been working with. Uh, they may pay off their medical bills, for example, if, if there's some large medical bills that some people have been struggling with. They may send them on vacation to give them a a break uh, from the years of of work that they have been giving to the company. Of course, these these employees are always amazed when this big reveal happens. It encourages them to know that the head of their company listens to them and and cares about them. It encourages them to realize that they are not as forgotten as they may have thought themselves to be but that the CEO or the head of their company would care enough to come work among them, to talk to them, to listen to their problems and what they're going through in life. With that in mind, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3. This chapter is all about God revealing himself. And as we've even considered the the first two weeks that we've been in in, in Exodus, really revealing himself to a people who may feel forgotten. So God first here, he reveals himself to Moses, who had spent 40 years now in obscurity in Midian. And he revealed, and as he reveals himself to Moses, he tells Moses to go make his name known to the people of Israel. To tell the people of Israel that he had seen them and heard them and that he had not forgotten them. And not only that, don't just tell them who he is and that he has not forgotten them, but he is about to bless them. He's going to lead them out of the land of Egypt, and he's going to take them to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. So as as we've thought about the first couple weeks in Exodus, Exodus is all about God making himself known to his people. It's about God making himself known to the nations. 
And in some ways, this chapter is really the beginning of that process. So follow along as I read Exodus chapter 3. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, Moses called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings. And I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go, I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who has sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me and said, I have paid close attention to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised you that I will bring you up from the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to what you say. Then you, along with the elders of Israel, must go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. However, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all, the, all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that he will let you go. And I will give these people such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor and any woman staying in her house for silver and gold jewelry and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. So you will plunder the Egyptians. As I just said, this, this week's text is really about God revealing himself to Moses and sending Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. Uh, and so considering those themes, I have three points for today's sermon. The first, God speaks. The second, God acts. 
And the third is God sends. God speaks, God acts, and God sends. So first, God speaks. So, so after Moses fled from Egypt, which is what we really looked at last week, he spent about 40 years in Midian before God appeared to him in the burning bush. So it would have been 40 years, which is older than I am, in which Israel continued to suffer. 40 years, it seems, of which Moses was living a pretty simple life as a, as a shepherd. He's tending the flock of his father-in-law. And one day, as Moses is out tending that flock, he comes to Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai, the Mount of God, where Israel would be given the Ten Commandments later. Well, as Moses comes near Mount Horeb, the Lord appears to him in a burning bush. It actually says in the text that the angel of the Lord appeared, but it is clear as we go throughout Exodus chapter 3 that it is God himself. As, uh, the text says that God is the one speaking to Moses. Well, the, the fire by which God appears to Moses here in the burning bush was a symbol of God's powerful presence, his, his consuming and his preserving presence. Uh, throughout the, the book of Exodus, fire is associated with the presence of, of God. So you'll recall that God leads the people by a pillar of fire, that when he speaks to the people from Mount Sinai, there is fire. And it really, even throughout Scripture, fire is, is used as an image of God's presence. And so the fire is, is real. There is a real burning bush, but it's also very symbolic of the Lord's presence. And so when Moses goes to investigate this remarkable side of a bush that is, not on, that, that is on fire but is not being burned up, it just keeps burning perpetually, the Lord appears to him and speaks to him. And so what I want you to, to notice is, as amazing as the burning bush is, as amazing as this sight is of a bush that is on fire, but a bush that is, is not being consumed, the focus of the text is not on the burning bush. It is not on this miraculous sight. The focus of the text is on what God says to Moses. The substance of God's revelation to Moses is not in the burning bush. It is in God's word. It is through God's word that he makes himself known. He makes himself known to Moses. It's how God makes himself known to us today. And so because the substance of God's revelation is his word, we want to turn our attention to the words that God speaks to Moses. Uh, the first thing that God does is he speaks to Moses here as he makes it clear that he is a holy God. As Moses approached the burning bush, God told him to, to come no further and told him to remove his shoes because he is standing on holy ground. In other words, as we just thought about, fire is symbolic of God's presence, so he is in the presence of the Lord. Now, I don't know that Moses had to take off his shoes every time he was in the Lord's presence. I don't know that he hiked up Mount Sinai barefoot. But, but here, the Lord is communicating something to Moses about himself. He's revealing his, his holiness to Moses. And we've thought about God's holiness a, a few different times in recent weeks, both in Luke and here in Exodus. But at its most basic level, God's holiness means that he is separate and distinct. He is separate and distinct from his creation and from all people. And God possesses a, a transcendent 
majesty. In other words, he is, is far greater than anyone or anything else. God is infinite in power. He is infinite in authority. He is infinite in dignity and beauty and splendor. He is holy. But God's holiness also means that he is morally pure, that he is perfect. I think this is the image that probably most often comes to mind when we think about what holiness is. Holiness means to be set apart, to be separate and distinct, but it also means to be morally pure. And so God's holiness means that he is absolutely perfect in all his character and all his, his actions. Uh, this purity of, of God's character, his perfection, is, is actually much of what makes God separate and distinct. And it's also what makes God unapproachable for sinful man apart from an act of God's grace. God is perfect, God is holy, and we are not. And so when, when God tells Moses to come no further and to take off his sandals, he is communicating that he cannot be approached casually. He is communicating that he is holy. But God does more than communicate his holiness to Moses in, in these verses. He also tells Moses who he is. Now look at, at verse 8. God told Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And as you may have noticed as we were reading through Exodus chapter 3, God repeats some form of the same statement in verses 13 in verses 14, and again in verse 16 as well. Uh, this is an important revelation of who God is, that he is the God of their ancestors. He is the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. Uh, what he is telling Moses here, at least in part, is that he should be known by what he has previously revealed to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob. And God has previously revealed himself to them. He has previously spoken to them, and he should be known by what he has revealed. God is also assuring Moses that he has not forgotten his promises or his people. That he would keep the promises that he has made to Abraham and to, to Isaac and to Jacob. So this, this revelation of who God is to Moses was, was meant to be a word of comfort and encouragement and assurance to Moses. And then as Moses delivered these same words to the people of Israel to be in a comfort and encouragement to them as well. An encouragement that the covenant-making God, the God who had been so faithful to their ancestors, the God of grace, was their God as well, and they were his people too. He would be faithful to them as he had been faithful to Abraham and to, to Isaac and to Jacob. He would be faithful to them as he had been faithful to see them multiply in the midst of oppression in Egypt. God would keep his promises. This has been a huge theme that we've seen through, throughout our study of Exodus so far. But God says even more than this. In verse 13, Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now I think it, admittedly this seems a bit vague. This seems a bit mysterious what the Lord says here. What does this name mean? 
what is included in, in what God is saying to, to Moses here. In his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem writes this about the name that the Lord gives. He writes, The implication is that God's existence and character are determined by himself alone and are not dependent on anyone or anything else. This means that God's being has always been and will always be exactly what it is. God is not dependent upon any part of creation for his existence or his nature. Without creation, God would still be infinitely loving, infinitely just, eternal, omniscient, Trinitarian, and so forth. Uh, so what Wayne Grudem is, is saying here is that when God says, I am who I am, God is communicating, I am, I, I am who I reveal myself to be. God is who he reveals himself to be. In other words, I am who I say I am. God is not defined by anyone or anything outside of himself. There is no one or no, nothing else that gives definition to who God is. God gives definition to himself. Not only does God define himself, he does not change. This is why it's a word of encouragement when he tells the, the Israelites, I'm the God of your, your fathers, I'm the God of your ancestors. In other words, I am this same God, these same promises I will fulfill. His character is not changed by circumstances or when he interacts with, with creation. You know, we might grow in our knowledge and understanding as we have a conversation with somebody. Our character may be sharpened as we spend time around other people. And God is not like this. He is who he is. And he will always be who he will be. So God is saying, I've already revealed myself to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I am who I've revealed myself to be, and I will be who I will reveal myself to be in the future. And in Exodus, God will reveal himself to be a redeemer God. He is revealing himself as the God who is willing and the God who is able to deliver his people. He will deliver them because as he promises in verse 12, he will be with his people. Well, brothers and sisters, fundamental to the Christian faith is the idea that God reveals himself. That we do not discover who, who God is. God is not what we want him to be, but he is who he tells us that he is. And he is who he tells us that he is in his word. I'm not sure if you've ever heard a statement like this or, or heard someone say something like this. Uh, maybe you've heard someone say something like, uh, that is not the God I worship. Or, that is not my Jesus. Uh, usually someone will say something like this in response to a claim about, that is being made about what God or who God is, is like. And for example, if someone teaches that God will one day judge sin, that God will one day judge people and condemn them to hell, another person may reply, that's not the God that I worship. The God I worship is love and would never condemn someone to hell. Now, they may not mean to do this. They may not mean this when they say it. But when people say things like that, what they're really saying is that they are able to define God. God is what they want him to be. They get to, to judge what God is like. And God is what they think is, is right or what they think he, he should be. God is who they want him to be. They do not conform to who God is. They not, do not conform their understanding of who God is by what he has revealed. But they are, in essence, saying that God is conforming to what they think he, he should be. 
The problem is that you and I do not get to define God. And God tells us what he is like. God's existence and character are determined only by him. They are determined by no one or nothing else. And so when God says in verse 15 that this is how I am to be remembered in every generation, he is saying he is to be remembered as he has revealed himself to be. And brothers and sisters, if God is the one who defines who he is, and if it is true that God is the one who reveals himself to us, you must go to your word if you want to know God. And God has revealed himself to you in his his word, just as he revealed himself to Moses by his word. He spoke to him here at the burning bush. You don't need to look for miraculous signs or your own burning bush, because God has given you his word. Therefore, if you neglect reading and studying God's word, you run the danger of defining God on your own terms, rather than how he has revealed himself to be. This is a a very spiritually dangerous thing to do. The only God is the God of the Bible. It's not the God of of human imagination. This truth that God reveals himself to us is why it is so important for the church to be centered on the word of God. If you've ever wondered why we read different scriptures every week in service, or we devote a lot of time to the, the sermon or why we simply preach through God's word, simply preach through different books of the Bible or different sections of Scripture. Well, well, this is why. Because God has revealed himself to us in his word, and it's to his word that we must go if we want to know God. It is to his word that we must go if we want to know God. This is also why the church has a statement of faith. The statement of faith is not authoritative. God's word is authoritative. But the purpose of a statement of faith is to do our best, and others who have statements of faith to do their best to summarize what God has revealed in his word. And God has given the church of of guarding and and protecting and accurately teaching what God has revealed. It's the job that God has given to his church. So throughout history, churches have adopted statements of faith to summarize the Bible's teaching in order to protect the church from error, to protect the church from people and the church itself from adopting a definition of God that would be against God's God's word. So to adopt a statement of faith and to uphold and defend sound doctrine and the doctrine that might be found in the statement of faith, which is to say the doctrine that we believe is in God's word, is really to say that we believe God is the one who defines who he is. And we think it is not important to distort what he has revealed to us in his word. And doctrine matters. And doctrine is important because what God has revealed about himself is important. God's revelation of himself in Exodus chapter 3 includes more than just his name. And God also revealed himself in his commitment to act on behalf of his people. And so that's where we're going to turn our attention in the second point of the sermon to to God acts or or God maybe more accurately promises or commits to act on behalf of his people. Now, remember, again, this is how chapter two of Exodus ended. If you look back at verses 23 and 25 of Exodus chapter two, this is how chapter two ends. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out. 
and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. Well, take a look with me now for a, for a moment at Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and, and what God tells Moses after he appears to him. Then the Lord said, I have observed, or saw, the misery of my people in Egypt, and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God repeats the same thing basically in verses 16 and 17. He tells Moses to tell the people of Israel, I have paid close attention to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised you that I will bring you up from the misery of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. So in these verses, God is, is assuring Moses and, and telling Moses to assure the people that he had indeed heard and remembered and seen and knew of their sufferings. He had not for, forgotten his, his people. In some way, Exodus chapter 3 is, is simply an extension on those last two verses of Exodus chapter 2. What does it mean for God to, to see and hear and know and remember his covenant? Well, we see it's going to come in God revealing himself to his people, God acting on behalf of his, of his people because he loves them. And he's seen their suffering and he is going to rescue them from that. And notice from these verses that it is God who is the initiator of Israel's redemption. It is by his work and his work alone that redemption will be accomplished. He both begins their rescue from slavery in Egypt and he will be the one to complete it. Now, what did God do in response to hearing and, and seeing and knowing the sufferings of his people? Well, we see it in verse 8. What did God do in response to hearing and seeing and knowing the sufferings of his people? He says, I have come down. God came down. He condescended to his people. He appeared in the burning bush. He revealed himself. He spoke to Moses. He acted. And he tells us the exact reason he came down. He came down to rescue his people and bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. God heard. God acted. And God would rescue and, and bless his people. He was the initiator of their rescue and of their redemption. He was the initiator of their salvation. God came down. Brothers and sisters, that, that statement that I have come down to rescue, that statement that God gives, I have come down to rescue, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ in a nutshell. Uh, if you want the gospel of Jesus Christ in one statement, it would be hard to do much better than that, that I have come down to rescue. In John 1.14, the Apostle John wrote this about Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, what is John saying there? God came down and took on human flesh. Now, this is what we celebrate at Christmas, that God came down. In fact, I think we reflected on John 1.14 in our Christmas Eve service this year for this very reason. Now, remember those verses that Marikon read, from us, or read for us from John 8 just a few moments ago. 
when the Jewish leaders are challenging Jesus, when they get angry that he is claiming to be uh, greater than Abraham and the, the Old Testament prophets, when they ask, who do you claim to be? Well, this is what Jesus says in response in John 8, 58. Truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am who I am. He's making the same statement that God is making in Exodus chapter 3. I am the God of Exodus. I, Jesus, am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. I am the God who redeems. Uh, friends, make no mistake. When Jesus came to earth, God came down. And that is what's so amazing, that, that God came down to be among his, his people. To live as a person. To take on human flesh, to, to know our sufferings, and to die for our sins. And Jesus came down for the very same reason that God came down to Moses. He came down to rescue his people. Famous verse from John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Friends, God acted to save you by sending his son, Jesus Christ. He came down to earth to live the perfect life of obedience, the life of holiness that you could not live. He came down to earth to die because the death that you deserve to die on the cross. He came down not just to die, but to be raised three days later, defeating sin and death, and so that you might have life in him. Now, Jesus provided a much greater salvation than Moses. He did not just save his people from physical slavery in the land of Egypt. He saved his people from their slavery to, to sin. He gave them new hearts. He gave them new natures. And there is a much greater promise for those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. Not just entrance into the land flowing with milk and honey, but entrance into the new heavens and new earth. God promised that those who believe in Jesus will not just gain entrance into a land flowing with milk and honey like the Israelites, but he promised that they will gain entrance into a land in which there will be no more sin, no more death, no more grief, no more tears, no more pain, no more war, no more sorrow. He promises eternal life. And so friends, if you are here and not a Christian, if you even feel forgotten or, or insignificant in some way, Know that in response to what God has done, sending Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for your wrongdoing, that is what the Bible calls sin, your transgressions against the Lord, your wrongdoing against the Lord, and your wrongdoing against others. Well, in response to God sending Jesus down, he calls you to turn from your sins, or to, to put away from your sins, to live in sin no longer. This is what the Bible calls repentance. And he calls you to place your trust in Jesus Christ. To trust that you cannot save yourself. And you cannot rescue yourself from your slavery to sin, even any more than the nation of Israel could rescue themselves from their bondage to Egypt. You need to be saved by another. So he calls you to place your trust in Jesus Christ, which is what the Bible calls faith. Now, this is the only way that you can be saved from slavery to sin. It is the only way that you can gain entrance into the new heavens and the new earth. That God came down to rescue, calls you to repent and believe. Like we thought about last week when you do this, you become known by God. You are not forgotten. You are one of his people. And for those of you who are Christians, I pray that this amazing reality that God came down in Jesus Christ 
that Jesus Christ came to suffer in your place will cause you to, to marvel at your own salvation. I pray that it will lead you to praise God who is the initiator of your salvation. Remember that you did not save yourself. You were only saved because God saw that you were lost in darkness. That you were suffering under the, the burden of sin. And he came down to rescue you. And he came down to redeem you. And praise be to God. And friends, if, if you are a Christian, know that God has, has not just come down to save you, though he, though he has. God came down and has sent you into the world to tell this wonderful news that God came down to save sinners. He, he came down to, to send you to make his glory known to others and to make his name known to others. And that brings us to the, the third and final point of the sermon. God sends. We just thought about God came down. God was the initiator of Israel's redemption. We don't want to miss the fact that God brings Moses into his plans when he speaks to Moses here. God was going to act through Moses to accomplish his purposes and to redeem his people from their slavery in Egypt. Look again at verse 10. Exodus 3.10, God tells Moses, Therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God chose to work through Moses to accomplish his purposes and to rescue his people. Uh, of course, as, as we just thought about, this is what God would do many years later when he sent Jesus Christ to rescue his people from their sins. And this is why the Bible presents Jesus as the new and greater Moses who accomplished a, a greater salvation because God sent Jesus Christ to rescue his people from their sins. But I want you to notice that, that God sends Moses to do more than lead his people out of Egypt. God commissions Moses to make his name known. God sends Moses to make his name and his promises known to the people of Israel and to Egypt. Three times in verses 13 through 16, God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel that he was sent by the God of their ancestors, that he was sent by the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He's to make God known to the people of Israel. At verse 14, Moses is to tell the people of Israel that I am has sent me to you. He has revealed what God has revealed about himself to Moses. He is to reveal to the people of Israel. Verse 18, he is to tell Pharaoh the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Well, he's going to be making, as we'll see throughout Exodus, he's going to be making God's glory known, God's presence known to Pharaoh. And Moses is to make God's name known to the nation of Israel, to Pharaoh, and to the people of Egypt themselves. Now, this is a, a big job that Moses has given. He's to, to lead a people to freedom who are enslaved to possibly the most powerful nation on earth. He's to tell them of, of, of who God is. And so perhaps it's not surprising that in verse 11 he asks, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? In other words, Moses is not so sure that he is the man for the job. Well, we'll actually see more of this next week as Moses continues to try to find a way out of, of what the Lord is sending him to do. Uh, but for now, just know that Moses knows that he is inadequate for the task. He is not up to this task that the Lord has sent him to do. But notice what the Lord tells Moses. 
Notice what it is that will strengthen Moses for the task that he has been sent to do. Verse 12. In reply to Moses' hesitation, God says, I will certainly be with you. What would strengthen Moses for the task? It was the presence of the Lord. It was the, the power of the Lord. As one author put it, where Moses was inadequate, there was a more than sufficient capability in the living, omnicompetent God. Where Moses was weak, almighty power would be at work. Moses was, was sent to rescue the Israelite and make God's name known. But he would not be alone in this task. God would go with him. The Israelites would not be rescued by the hand of Moses. They would be rescued by the power of God. Now, I think people have a God-given desire to be in the presence of other people in scary situations. Children want their parents to ride with them uh, the first time they go on a roller coaster. Uh, people want a friend or a family member to go with them if they, have, if they get summoned to court, to, that they have to go to court. In war, no one wants to find themselves fighting alone. In Ukraine, people are huddled together in shelters. They want to be in the presence of other people. People fear the idea of being stranded alone on a desert island. Those who are dying want a loved one to be at their bedside. The presence of other people is a comfort to us. I think God has designed the presence of people to be a comfort to us. But brothers and sisters, how much greater... How much greater comfort is the presence of God? If you are a Christian, God promises to never leave you or forsake you. He promises that his presence is always with you. And God gives you his presence. God gives you his spirit because he loves you. But he also does it to strengthen you for the task to which he has called you. We can list another number of things that God's presence or God's spirit strengthens you for. For example, God's Spirit strengthens you in your fight against sin. But what I want you to see from this text today is that it strengthens you in your commission to go and make disciples of all nations. That is the commission that God has given to his church. It is the commission that he has given to all members of his church. So like Moses was sent to make God's name known, when you become a Christian, you are given a commission to go make God's name known to those who do not know him. You are given a commission to share the good news of the gospel, to share the good news that God has come down to rescue his, his people, to tell them how he has rescued you, how he has redeemed you. He's given you a new heart and a new nature. I mean, this is part of the job description of Christians, to go and make disciples of all nations. Now, now look, I know it can be an intimidating it can be a scary thing to go tell the good news of the gospel. Uh, I struggle with it too. Uh, I think many, if not most, Christians struggle with that. But let me encourage you from, from this text with the fact that God is with you. If you're a Christian, God is with you just as he was with Moses. When Jesus gives the command to his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, he ends by saying this in Matthew 28, 20. And remember... I am with you always, to the end of the age. And what does Jesus do to strengthen the disciples with this task? He promises his presence. 
Uh, not too many days later, he sends his spirit to indwell them. And as you embark on this task, as, as you seek to make God's name known to people who do not know God's name, let me encourage you that it's okay to start small. And perhaps start by just telling someone when they ask you what you did with your off day or what you did on Sunday, let them know that you went to church. Let's see if a, a conversation can grow out of that. Let them know that it was important for you to gather with God's people. Perhaps ask them if they know what happens at a church. And if you're not sure where to start or what to do or how to share the gospel, well, we'll go talk to another brother and sister in Christ. Let them help you and walk you through it. You could borrow one of the books that we have back there in, in the library on evangelism. You could check out the book on what is the gospel if you want to help better understand and better articulate and share the message of the gospel. But brothers and sisters, God promises his presence with you. He calls you to go and make disciples. He commissions you as he commissions Moses, but he promises his presence. But friends, let me, let me encourage you that as part of that commission that the Lord gives you, he only commissions you to go and proclaim. He only calls you to go in and make his name known. He does not ask you to produce results. He does not ask you to make people believe. He does not ask you to physically save anyone. Now look at verse 18. God tells Moses that when Moses makes his name known to the people of Israel, they will listen. But if you look down at verses 19 and 20, he tells Moses that Pharaoh will not listen. Think about that a little bit more in a couple weeks. But he tells, he tells Moses that Pharaoh will not listen. Pharaoh will only let God's people go when God, when God will stretch out his hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles. God will work through Moses, but it is God, not Moses, who will deliver the people of Israel. It is God, not Moses, who will produce results. It is God, not Moses, who is sufficient for the task. It is God, not Moses, who is all-powerful. It is God, not Moses, who will truly make his power and his might and his glory known to Pharaoh, to Egypt, to the nation of Israel. And it is God who is continually at work doing that to all nations today. And Christian, it is God, who, not you, who causes people to believe. He sends you to make his name known. He sends you to proclaim his word. He sends you to proclaim the revelation that he has given of himself. But it is God who works through that revelation. It is God who works through his word as it is proclaimed to change hearts, to give people new hearts and new natures. As we will see in the coming weeks, God will act in mighty ways to fulfill his promise to bring Israel out of Egypt. We're not too far from getting to the plagues that God sends on Egypt. It is God who will, do might, will act in mighty ways to bring Israel out of Egypt and to start them on their journey to a land flowing with milk and honey. So we see in verse 21, as part of this process, God will bless his people. He will give Israel favor with the Egyptians so that they will take much wealth out of Egypt when they, with them when they depart. We'll, we'll see exactly what that means in a few weeks when we, when we get to Israel actually coming out of Egypt. But just see here from verse 21 that God will providentially care for his people. And God will, will bless his people. God is going to act on behalf of his people. My friends, it is God who reveals himself to his people. It is God who acts on behalf of his people. It is God who promises to be with his people. Christian, the God who can simply say, I am who I am, 
has called you. This God knows you. This God has sent you. And this God promises to be with you wherever you go. Let's pray.